0: Yesterday, as you're all probably quite aware by now, there was a bomb in Yerushalayim. And this bomb was in, not exactly in May Sharm, it was in Basis Yisrael which adjoins uh, May Sharm. And, and Basis Yisrael where the bomb was, was a, an area which was highly concentrated with American yeshiva students in Mary Yeshiva and in its satellite yeshivas and other kinds of yeshivas. A lot of American yeshiva students were there, and that's where the bomb went off. Miraculously, no one was really injured. There was one woman that was injured in the forehead, and it was a huge bomb. I mean, the bomb exploded scattering pieces of the... There was two bombs, actually. Scattering pieces of the automobile, hundreds of meters in many directions. (coughs) And it was in the afternoon, during Seder time, when Bachem was supposed to be learning. But it's in a very heavily concentrated area of Yeshiva Bachem. What's interesting though is the reaction. And the radio reported on some of the reactions. Jerusalem Post radio reported on some of the reactions. And and that's really going to be a little bit of a topic of the discussion that we'll see in the Parsha. First of all, what strikes one, or what struck some of the reporters there was that the initial reaction of the people in the neighborhood was not one of calling the police and everything else. Okay, they attributed to an anti Zionistic reason, which is not really the case. But the initial reaction was they started to daven and say him. As you hear the bomb go off, you're concerned for injuries, for people, for whatever it is, and they started davening. They hear a bomb, they start davening, they start saying Tillum. Again, the reporter is attributed to all kinds of things, and my, uh, my understanding is just that's what you do. It's not because they don't want the police there. The second interesting reaction was, as the reporter was uh, reporting it, that there was a lot of singing in the background. A lot of singing. There was singing and dancing in the streets. Now, why would someone sing and dance in the streets if there's a bomb? Well, when people realized that no one was really injured, and they considered it to be miraculous, and when I say the word miraculous, I'm using it not only to define the description of the Bahram themselves, but of the police. The police themselves, and the chief of police, in fact, it was the, the, the uh, byline, or the, whatever the headline in the Jerusalem Post was, that it was miraculous that no one was really injured in this bomb. And now this is the second time, if you recall, that there was a bomb, and they used the same term in the same area. The first time the they just happened to have seen someone throw a bomb in the garbage. And as I told you before, there's a lot of garbage there now during this garbage strike. And the guy just happened to have seen it, goes over, pulls the plug on the bomb, and two minutes later the cell phone rigs and it could have been extremely... I mean, and again, they use the term miracle. So here you have, in the period of a couple of weeks, and they say lightning doesn't strike twice. And usually, the Arab terrorists tend to not uh, put bombs in the exact same place, except a year or two later or something. And, so, and, and usually, from the neighborhoods were never really targeted. Sharm wasn't really targeted by Arabs before. But now you have, in the period of several weeks, two bombs targeted in the, from the neighborhood, Sharm, Surrounded by Yishima guys. And both times, miraculously, everyone in the area escapes injury. So the Balkan were commenting on it, and the reporters were commenting on it, and so were the police. And as you're listening to them, you could hear the singing and the dancing in the streets in the background. Hundreds of people <coughs> singing and dancing. Well, let's now go to the Parsha. And we'll see a very parallel thing. I mean, of course, you're all familiar with the song of the sea. What you may not be as familiar with is the prayer part. Well, the Jews escape Egypt. Hashem takes them out of Egypt. And all of a sudden, Paro decides that he's not thrilled with the idea of the Jews leaving and on page one hundred and sixty, he decides to amass an army. <laughs> Top of the page, Vayeser es Ves Amo lochachimo. Paro himself, he himself uh, saddles his own chariot, which, which is rather, which is rather strange, because he's the king. Rashi points out that he himself did it. And he decided, I'm going to lead the charge into battle. Again, which is unusual other than my Israeli generals that lead their troops into battle. By going, it certainly was never the case that a general and certainly a king doesn't lead the people. Here, Paro is leading the charge. He himself saddles. He hates the Jews so much so and he wants to wreak vengeance on them to such a degree that he himself puts his chariot... And he promises all kinds of inducements to his people. They all come with him. Paro pursues the Jews. The Jews are, at this point, encamped by the river. And they're surrounded. Surrounded on three sides. As it says, by the river, by the sea, I should say. Sus rech of paro, the whole army of paro, his chariots, charioteers, by piachiros, these, these outcroppings of the, the desert, Nebal Tzafon, before the god of Egypt, the only god of Egypt, that was not destroyed. The most powerful god of Egypt, Baal Tzafon, which literally translates as the master of the north. The reason, of course, is because this is where Egypt was most vulnerable. So they placed their chief God by this entry into Egypt. And during Makas Bukharos when Hashem destroyed all the idols, He did not destroy this idol. To kind of confuse the Egyptians into thinking this is how God got the Egyptians out to their own destruction. When we talk about God hardening the hearts of the Egyptians, it doesn't necessarily mean that He imposed upon their wills, His own will but he toyed with them, and he was able to mislead them in a way that accomplished the same purpose. It's sort of like a bull that you wave the red, whatever it is, although bulls, I think, are colorblind, but everybody at least thinks that they're not. So, when you wave the red flag at them, you know what the bull's going to do. So, what are you doing? Are you interfering with its free will? It's, you just knows the nature of the bull. Hashem knew the nature of the arrogance of power of the Egyptians, and by making the Jews seemingly uh, lost and out of, you know, um, confused. It gets the Egyptians to think that the Jews are not invincible. He also then places them in a strategically vulnerable position. Plus, he allows the god of the Egyptians to survive. And this is exactly where the Jews are now are now encamped. As the Pesach has said earlier, Paro was informed of where the Jews were. And and Hashem has the Jews retreat by Piachiros to be to be closed off on three sides between Migdol and the Yam in front of Baal zephon And Hashem said precisely Volmar nesol." and saying they're they're confused and confounded in the wilderness. Sogar Aleim Amit, the desert has closed against them, and therefore they're surrounded. And this will induce Paro to make a strategic error. Basically, it's very similar to what you have in, in other forms of battle, where you try to confuse the enemy into making the wrong decision based on, uh, on a feint or, uh, or a diversion of sorts. Here, the Jews became their own diversion. They go into the wrong place. Paro says, ah, they don't know what they're doing. They're very vulnerable. Now's the time to come and massacre the Jews. But then the Pasuk says, and this is the important part, Pasuk Yud, Ufaro Hikriv, and Paro comes near. And as he approaches the Jewish camp, V'yisuvinei Yisrola, say, the Jews lift up their eyes, be no se'achem, and behold, they see all of Egypt pursuing them. They become very frightened. And they cry out to Hashem. And they doubt them. The next passage, though, talks of the complaints of some of them. Chazal tells us that there were different factions. Some prayed, some complained, some wanted to fight different factions but here we have the Jews Davni so what does this mean says Rashi if you look in Rashi in the second column top line they cried out they took hold of the trade, of the occupation, if you will, of their forefathers. In other words, prayer. Prayer is a Jewish thing to do. We know Avram david. he went to that spot by the Yitzchok Yitzchok likewise went out to the field to pray. Yaakov, it says, And he prayed in that place. So we find by Avram, by Yitzhak, by Yaakov, the Torah emphasizes how they would pray. They prayed in certain locations. Therefore, when the Jews prayed over here, they were basically utilizing the trade and the, the legacy of their forefathers to pray. Topsu umnois they cried out in prayer to Hashem. Although later on we do find that by Shlishi, we find a kind of a reprimand. Don't pray too much. In Shlishi Matitzak says, Why are you crying to me? Why are you praying? So tell the Jews to travel through the sea. And here, she says, three lines from the bottom, we see how Moshe was davening. When Hashem says to Moshe, "Now is not the time to have lengthy prayers." Why? She's saw nice, and the rather, because the Jews are the Jews are in, in trouble, and now is not the time for prayer. Now is the time for action, if you will. So, what's interesting is the two reactions in Sukkot where we find on the one hand it seems to be praised that the Jews daven and yet Moshe Rabbeinu is kind of being reprimanded, you're praying too much now not the time for prayer the obvious difference that strikes you at first is that in the first case it's the Jewish people themselves davening mm-hmm. and Hashem does not seem to, to criticize them for that and that's where she says, oh, they're doing what their forefathers did. The second time, though, where there is criticism was to an individual's prayer. Moshe Rabbeinu himself is davening. And I should say, hey, the Jews are in sars. Why are you davening? The Jews are in trouble. It's sort of like if you see someone being run over by a car. That's not the time to start saying to them on behalf of the person. Now's the time to go out and try to help the person. Don't say till the guy was just run over. On the other hand, you're about to be run over. That's the time to, to start praying. In any case, so we have two different examples of prayer mentioned here. One is seemingly praised. The other is seemingly criticized. Jews are praised. Moshe is criticized. And of course we know that the outcome of this was that after the events of the miracle of the Red Sea, on page 162, Oz Moshe b'nei by then Moshe and the Bnei sang the song. The word Oz is a little bit also unusual here then. Maybe the answer of course is now the time to sing to sing praises to Hashem. Oz Yosher. Now a good time, you know, after the Salvation So again, going back to the events of yesterday in Yerushalayim, seemingly they hear the bomb go off and their first reaction is prayer. They then discover the miracle and they all start singing. So we have a kind of a of a um, reprise of what happened in the Parsha where there's a kind of a miracle and initially they pray and They subsequently praise Hashem and sing a song, the Song of the Sea. The medrash though, does something else with the word Oz. There's a very long Rashi, trying to describe what this Oz is about. Rashi notes the significance of the word Oz, Oz Yashir, singing the song. But there's an interesting medrash let's take a quick look at the first part of the Medrash. Um, I, I don't have the whole Medrash here, but it's in the Beis Alevi in the small print on the lower left where he quotes the Medrash and we're going to take a look only at the first few lines of the Beis Alevi. And then we're going to go back and do something else and then come back to it. Adyoshim, Osher says the Beis east of the Medrash. The Medrash relates how Omar Moshe, Moshe says I had previously sinned using the word Oz, I'm going to make up for it by beginning by beginning the song of the sea with the word, Oz as well. But one has to explain what this means. To explain Matikun huze? What tikkun is involved in this making the Ashiru Teva by beginning the song with the same word that he began with earlier? In other words, what the Medrash highlights is the following: If you look earlier on page, on page, let's find it over here. on page 137 page 137 Hashem initially sends Moshe to Paro to tell him to let the Jews go and Paro's reaction to Moshe's initial request to let the Jews go is he says you think you want to leave Egypt? twice the workload he increases the workload on that sort of like I guess I don't know they've been doing it ever since in the Middle East You offer me this? Oh, you're (laughs) offering me that? I want more. You know, you're offering me Yushalayim, I want Harbais. Oh, you're offering me Harbais. I want the whole Harbais. You're giving me that? Okay, I want the refugees also. You just keep upping the ante. That was power's first response. And Hashem said even then, and things haven't changed all that much, it's only going to be the Yod Chazaka, the powerful arm that's going to get them to see the light and to compromise. Otherwise, they just don't see it. They don't get it. And Moshe Rabbeinu, I guess, in his first reaction to the fact that Paro, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu said that he's going to come to Paro on behalf of Hashem and let the Jews go. And he thought things will start easing up. Instead, Paro makes things worse. So Moshe comes back complaining to Hashem. And this is his complaint. If you look on page 137 on possible Habeiz by the Mafter by Yosho of Moshe and Moshe returns, El Hashem, the God, by Yomar. And he says, Hashem, Lomo Harayos HaLomazeh. My Master, why have you dealt evilly with this people, with the Jewish people? Lomo the why did you send me? Umeoz Vos paro? from the time that I have come on your behalf, as your mission to Paro, Udabir Bishmecha, to speak in your name, Heira lomaze." He's made it worse for the Jews. And you, God, you never did anything yet to save the Jews. This is a very strong, harsh statement. And Moshe was reprimanded for the harshness of his, not necessarily for the entire content of what he said, but for the tone of what he said. And the tone has in it the word awesome. From that time that I came on your behalf to Paro, on your mission, look what happened. Things are worse, not better. You dealt dealt evilly with the Jews, and you haven't saved them. Well now in the final salvation, Moshe Rabbeinu, looking back at it, says, you know, I sinned in my initial mission with the word Oz, because this was the first time Moshe was really sent, and he uses the word Oz to complain to God. He says, you know what, I'm going to make up for it by beginning the song of the sea with the word Oz as well. I sinned with Oz, let me make up for it with Oz. What does that mean? How are you making up for an Oz by singing a song and beginning it with the word Oz? Okay. Now, let's go back to this business of prayer as well. What is Prayer. So we mentioned how yesterday they prayed. wasn't appropriate at the time. They sang. They... In general, how does one understand the issue of prayer? You know, how does one understand certainly long prayer? I mean, God heard you the first time. We all know the story of the agate um, bus driver. When he comes to heaven... And uh, they let him in front of the line into Gan Eden, where everybody is waiting in line. And of course, they, uh, all the rabbis in line, standing, and, hey, we're waiting patiently, I turn. Huh? How do you get in front of us? He says, when you get up in shul to give your sermon, everybody falls asleep. When I get up to drive, everybody's daffing. <laughs> uh, so... All right, so what you have is everyone downing. Let's take another Hebrew grammatical term that has to be understood over here. Going back to the apostate that we began with in the prayer. Apostate Yud on page 160 again. Egypt is pursuing the Jews. The Jews begin to down, But the apostate begins... With the words ufaro hikriv. Rashi notes the grammatical usage of paro hikriv. Why? Because correct Hebrew grammar, if you look in Rashi, three lines from the bottom of the first column, hoyolo lichtov uparo korav. What it should have said is paro near. Paro came near. And the word for that is korav, come near. What is hikriv? Hikriv means to bring near. Hikriv means to bring something else, like when you're makriv a korvith. It would translate paro, brought near. It should have been paro, came near. Hikriv means you bring something else. The words boh or boh mm. means to come. Hevi means to bring something else. You bring bikurv. The person that comes near is Ba. The person that brings Bikurim is called Mevi Asab Bikurim or Hevi. He's bringing Bikurim. If you come near, you say Korah, like the Korban. If you bring a Korban, Hikrib, you're being makrib the Korban. The coin brings the Korban or the owner brings the Korban. This it should be Paro Korah. Paro Hikrib means he brings near. The, the, the meaning of the Pusik is Paro neared, and the Jews upon seeing Paro nearing Egypt there, begin to doubt. But the introduction of uparo hekrib, and there's an esnachto there, which makes a kind of its own posseh. Paro came near. Even in simplest understanding, again the overall posseh is saying that Egypt neared, but it says paro came near. That's not even the point. The point is the next part. The Jews look up and they see all of Egypt pursuing them. They're scared. They cry out and die unto Hashem. What is the power Hikriv? The power himself came near, or power brings Egypt near. So Rashi explains that the Hikriv means, as if to say, not only power near, but like he brought himself. What does it mean to bring yourself? It's just a more poetic way of saying. He strengthened himself but he really pushed himself. It's like saying, I pushed myself. You push yourself. I'm bringing myself near. He really pushed himself to pursue the Jews. And therefore, Paro says, I'm going to go first in battle. That's the original deal that he made with them. So here, Paro is going to lead the charge. So Rashi sees in the words, Paro, Hikriv as saying, Paro is leading the charge. But the word hikrim is a little bit problematic because it still should have said Paro Korah, that Paro himself came near. What does it mean, Paro brought near? So the Medvish has a very interesting understanding of this. Very similar to something which we learned when we learned Megillah. Says the Medvish, look on the top right. Mahu Paro hikrim. What is the meaning of Paro bringing near? Yes, he brought near. He brought the Jews near to God. Paro was the indirect cause of the Jews becoming closer to God. Elo she hikr v'shishroh tshuva, He brought the Jews close to doing tshuva, to being near to Hashem. He brought the Jews back. They did tshuva, they prayed to Hashem. Omar Rav The medish continues. It was better what Paro did to bring the Jews close to Hashem more than more than a hundred days of fasting and praying. What Paro accomplished in pursuing the Jews accomplished more to bring the Jews near to heaven than a hundred prayers and days of fasting. A number of weeks ago, Barack resigns from prime ministership. He thinks he's smart. And by doing that, he's going to short out Netanyahu's challenge because the polls were leading were showing how Netanyahu was leading Barack by approximately fifteen to twenty percentage points. But the polls showed that he was leading Sharon by 5 to 10 percentage points. By resigning the prime ministership in such a way as to precipitate elections, he was able to effectively, unless they pass another law, to keep Netanyahu out of the running. Therefore, his opponent would only be Sharon, who is universally reviled by Arabs and Westerners, Americans, and by extension, many Israelis revile him as well. And Barack was ahead of Sharon by five to ten percentage points. He thought he was smart. A week later, they were approximately <clears throat> neck and neck, where Sharon, who is a known entity, a known quantity, and everybody can't stand, or at least before people couldn't stand, was now about two or three percentage points behind, but statistically tied. A week after that, Sharon was ahead by about three percentage points. Netanyahu would still be ahead by 20 points. Charon at this point was ahead by about 3 percentage points. And gradually started increasing to double digit And he won the election this week by over 25%. Astounding. From being behind 5 percentage points to being ahead by 25 percentage points. He did not run a great campaign, Charon. The only thing that one could say that was that was good about his campaign was that he didn't make mistakes. He ran a very low-key campaign and allowed the momentum to work on itself. And he tried to avoid mistakes. He made a couple of little minor blunders here and there. Sharon, if you'd come out, he's not exactly photogenic. He's not the person that you're going to normally vote for. He ran a very low-key campaign in order to let the momentum... So who was his campaign manager that had the brilliance to catapult? Arafat. Arafat was the head of Sharon's campaign and basically Arafat did everything he possibly could to make sure that Sharon would win I mean, I don't know, I would say they were cahoots. even when the Israelis were saying we've never been this close <coughs> along comes Arafat and calls him fascists and barbaric and whatever else I mean, Arafat did whatever he could to make sure that Sharon wins Ufaro Hikriv Who brought the Jews near to God? Paro. It was more valuable to have one Arafat do whatever he did than a hundred campaign speeches. It was more valuable to bring the Jews near to God by having one Paro do what he did than a hundred days of prayer and fasting would never bring the Jews as close to God as Paro did. Paro Hikriv, Paro brought near. That's what the passage is saying. And the Passover was introducing itself. Who Pharaoh brings near. How's that? The Jews look up. They see the Egyptians pursuing them. They see all, all hope being lost by Yitzhak, Hashem, and they cry out to Hashem. And subsequent to that, there's a huge miracle. And the Jews are now as close to God as was ever possible for an entire people to become. By the song of the sea, the Jews became very near to Hashem. And who did it all? Ufaro Hikrib. Paro brought them near. It's a lesson to us about what causes Jews to come near. There's a similar Gemara in Megillah, which we learned, that Gedola Hasaras Hatabas, greater was the act of the removal of the ring of Achashverosh and giving it to Haman, it accomplished more than 48 prophets, that the Jews had. Meaning, all of Tanakh is exhorting the Jews to return to Hashem. Prophet after prophet with all of their eloquence. And those prophets are very eloquent. beautiful prophecies and eloquence get the Jews to do Tshuva. And uh, didn't seem to happen. There was a hormon. And Ahasuerus removes the ring and says to him, Here, you can do genocide if you want. That's basically what he said: kill the Jews. And all of a sudden, the Jews do tshuva, as we know, Kimu haYehudim. The Jews re-accepted the Torah. The events of Purim was like the was like the um, events of the the return of the Jewish people to Hashem. So Chazal comment on the striking contrast: how the removal of the ring of Achashverosh signaling the sealing of the destruction of the Jews did more to get the Jews close to Hashem and to learn Torah to do tshuva than 48 exhortations of different prophets. Exact same thing. Ufaro Hikriv. Now the Medrash though says a very interesting mashal. Let's read the words of the Medrash's mashal. First we'll start off with three lines before we get to the Mashal, we're three lights from the top of the Smedish. The Loma, how did the power bring the Jews there? Shekidim tshirot v'achareim v'roo v'esanah. When the Jews see the Egyptians in hot pursuit, nisiyaru the v'tolo eneim l'moram, they become afraid and they realize that their only hope is in heaven. V'asut tshuva, they did tshuva they d'aven shenemar v'yitz'akub v'nei Yisrael. They cried out, and as Rashi says, they took upon themselves the the occupation, the trade craft, the craft of their forefathers, prayer. <speaking in Hebrew> they found themselves surrounded on three sides. <speaking in Hebrew> on one side is the desert. On one side is the is the sea. On one side, the Egyptians are pursuing them. They look heavenward and they cry out to Hashem. Why does God do all this? And here the Medjah says something which we're not going to go into as, as another lesson. God greatly desired their prayer. God desired the prayer of the Jews. He wants the prayer. And this is what we have to understand. What does that mean? We find the precedent for this as well. As we know, it says, when Yitzchak was, his wife was barren, Rivka was barren. So it says that Yitzhak and Rivka both davened to Hashem so they should have children. And Chazal over there commented in the same way. Why was it? How all of the forefathers and the four mothers, we should say, were barren. Avram, Yitzchok, and Yaakov. It was with difficulty that they had children; they were barren. And the answer was, "Va'yetar Yitzchok Lashem he Hashem." And Yitzchok prays with great, with great um, intent and kavana to Hashem. And Hashem answers it. Why? Because HaKadosh Hashem desires Tzadikim to pray and He therefore places them in situations where they have to pray in order to promote prayer. Now the question is why? What is this about prayer that it becomes now something which Hashem wants us to do when seemingly prayer is a means to an end To accomplish something So now let's take a look At the marshal of the Medrash gives <speaking in Hebrew> To what can this be compared <speaking in Hebrew> A king On a road He's a knight <speaking in Hebrew> And there was this princess that was crying out, crying out to him. Please save me, help me, save me from whatever the evil knights. Shoma ha-Melech, the Melech who was chivalrous, sees a fair damsel in distress. Vitziladi saves her. The king takes a liking to her. The knight wants to marry her. He'd like to marry this fair damsel who's no longer in distress. He goes to her and tries to engage her in conversation. He'd like to talk to her and hear her. And she doesn't give him the time of day. She doesn't talk to him. She was unwilling to engage in conversation with the knight that had saved her life. What does the king do? He brings more robbers and more. He puts her in distress again. He places her in danger again so that she should cry out and need his salvation and that he should hear. Sure enough, she finds herself in distress again, in danger. She's crying out, Save me, save me. So when the king saves her, he says, this is what I wanted. This is what I want in I wanted to hear the sound of your voice. I wanted you to talk to me.. We know that when the Jews were in distress in Egypt, they cried out to Hashem. And we know that Bayra, Hashem responds. Hashem responds, He takes them out of Egypt and saves them. And Hashem would like to hear the sound of their prayers again. He wants to hear the Jews talk to him, cry to him, engage him, he writes them, but they weren't interested. Things are good. Things are good if they don't talk to God. Ma also, Gira lirdov Paro Hikrib. Hashem sends Paro in pursuit of the Jews in order to bring the Jews back to Hashem. Paro Hikrib. He sends Paro to be Makrib to bring the Jews near to Hashem. Miad Ba'itakub al-Hashem. To which Hashem says, This is what I want. I wanted to hear the sound of your voices. And it culminates, of course, with Oz Yoshir. With Van Leviu, with the Jews coming very near Hashem, borrowing Christ So, besides the obvious lesson that this teaches us, how it's only in times of distress and travail that we reach out to Hashem and pray to Him, and besides the corollary lesson of this, which is that the benefits of being in these situations is that one becomes near to Hashem in times of trouble, which he does not, in times of plenty and happiness. And that people tend to become more spiritual, and close to Hashem, when they're in distress, more so than when things are good. That's the corollary lesson. But there's also another interesting, subtle lesson to be learned from this. And that is to change our perspective on how to view the relationship between prayer and salvation. Prayer is not a means to salvation. Sorrows are a means, by way of its salvation of course, to prayer. The king didn't want to hear the woman's crying in order to save her. He wanted the ability to save her, to hear her cry out so that he should develop a relationship with her. Prayer, therefore, is relationship. It's about closeness to Hashem and relationship. And therefore, it's not a means to an end. It's an end in itself. And for that reason, when we asked the question earlier, what's the point of lengthy prayer? God heard you the first time. We asked the question, what is prayer? I mean, how do you pray against God's decree? If God knows what's good for you, then He knows what's good for you. And whatever situation you find yourself in is, is something which God has ordained. And yes, God sometimes places you in situations where you could extricate yourself, and therefore you should extricate yourself when you could. But what about those situations where you cannot extricate yourself from the situation? And if we have to come out to prayer to Hashem to do it, what's the point if God placed you there? Why are you asking Him? Isn't it a kind of a chutzpah to ask Him to extricate you out of a situation? If He put you there, you can't extricate yourself. And only He can. Well, He knew what He was doing in the first place to get you there. Why pray to be released? And even if you're praying, He say, God, release him." What's the lengthy prayers all about? What are you nudging Him? Again and again. He heard you the first time. God saved me. Why again and again the constant nudging and nagging of Hashem? What's lengthy prayer all about? That quickly... Immediately, God either does it or doesn't do it. And of course, the basic question is, why even pray? He knows where you are. He knows your situation. He knows he can get you out of your situation. Of what point is your prayer? It's pointless to begin with, since there's nothing that you're informing him of that he doesn't know. And secondly, if there is something to be done by praying to Hashem, what is the lengthy prayer all about? Since he already heard you the first and the second time. Why constantly implore? So this teaches us a lesson about what prayer is and that answers all of these questions. Let's take a look at the way he says it. Reb Chatzko Levenstein explained based on this medrash, a tremendous lesson regarding prayer. As we're saying, we're used to thinking of prayer as a means Salvation to be saved from sorrows and distress and therefore if the tsar would never come we'd be much happier and we wouldn't need prayer why pray to be released if everything is good and therefore according to this understanding of what prayer is his prayer therefore becomes a consequence according to this of the fact that you're in sorrow, that you're under distress and that you're in a need of salvation and therefore prayer becomes the vehicle and the means of achieving the salvation when people are are surrounded by by tzars, the way of release from distress is by prayer. That's the way people commonly view prayer. <inaudible> Come the to the Medrash to that no, we have to view prayer exactly the opposite. <inaudible> prayer is an end and the end in itself. <inaudible> Which is what feeds the world its sustenance. Prayer is made as a kind of a spiritual food substance that keeps the world going. It's the fuel of the universe, if you will. It fuels it. It keeps it going. And therefore, prayer is a necessary element in the maintenance of the universe, of creation. And prayer is something which human beings need. Why? Because prayer is about relationship. And it's relationship that counts again, let's take another example you buy a toy for your little son or in this case maybe your little grandson why are you buying him a toy? because you want his love to put it very cheaply you're trying to buy his love it's not really but that's the essence of what you're trying to do, you're trying to buy his love purchase it with a toy the child doesn't realize it the child realizes that if my grandfather loves me And if I love my grandfather, he will buy me toys. He is interested in the toy, and the love and the relationship is a means and a vehicle for him to achieve his ultimate goal, which is the procurement of more and more toys. The grandfather, on the other hand, views it quite differently. The giving of more and more toys to the grandchild is to procure more and more love and to establish a close relationship. It's the relationship that counts The toys are a means to an end. The child, in his immature naivety, or in his immaturity, views it quite the opposite. Love is a way of achieving toys. To you, the mature person, toys are a way of achieving love. It's the same thing with prayer. If you're immature, you view prayer as a means of achieving salvation. To Hashem, He's our Father in Heaven, He wants to establish relationships with us. And tefillah is relationship. And therefore he places us in situations whereby we have a need for prayer to establish relationship, thereby to establish, to achieve salvation. But the point is the relationship and not the salvation or the Tsarist. Because viewed from that angle, you're you're better off without the Tsarist, without the need for salvation, and things are good. Viewed the other way, you're better off with Tsarist and salvation as a means of establishing the relationship. I use an example just that we could relate to the idea of means to an end versus the other party looking at it as as, as the other way around. You're right. What would be more accurate, and we'll come to that shortly, is that when Hashem showers us with certain things and we become thankful for them, then we establish relationships. Therefore, the more accurate one is, I just use that as a way of you understanding how you're viewing the toys as a means to love, and the child is viewing love as a means to toys. It's right. a very primitive. Okay. It says something very different about the world y- Well, yes. Um, one second. I'll, I'll, I'll extend it shortly. My point just was that you should be able to see that contrast immediately. That's something that everybody readily understands. A more subtle way of viewing it, and, and what you decide after a while that you're taking it for granted. And you want them to sometimes feel a little bit the lack and the need where they have to come to you and say, Father, I need you. And I say, aha, that's what I want you to realize.
1: It's not only that
0: I'm a grandfather. You know, I've said this before, I don't remember where I once read it. The problem nowadays is not that people, their relationship to God is you know, our Father who art in heaven. It's our grandfather who art in heaven. We tend to view God as this kindly old man who makes no demands of us and doesn't really care other than to occasionally we visit him and he gives us a few tchotchkelech, etc. A father is demanding and a father wants to train his children in certain ways. And part of that is is a product of the relationship. So a more accurate portrayal then is you with your own son. If you're supporting them and after a while they're taking things for granted. You want them to realize what your relationship to them is. Not as a grandfather to a grandchild with toys. But as a father To a child who needs him. And as a result of the closeness of the relationship. They develop a very tight relationship. And therefore you want them to sometimes feel the need. I wouldn't say to beat them. But to make them feel the need. What happens when the bills start piling up? And I'm not there to do it. You're used to using my credit card. But you know what? No more credit card. Every time you need a bill. Come to me. And we'll, we'll discuss it. So in a sense. But the point of all this though Is the reversal of the roles of prayer and salvation Prayer is the goal Because prayer ultimately is about Being close to Hashem relationship In fact the word for prayer is avodah And the word for korbonis is avodah And we know that phil is a replacement for korbonis, Avodah And what does the word korbon mean? Hikrim, to come near It's about coming near That's what prayer is Is therefore a goal in itself and it's needed directly to maintain the world and it also brings the two parties together. (inaudible) It brings the davener close to Hashem. You know, one thing one has to understand that Hashem has no real options when it comes to establishing a relationship because that's where we say it's in our hands. He could do everything else. It would be akin to the fact that, you know, I give my children everything. I give them everything. But the one thing you can say is, you can say, I give them all kinds of love unconditionally. And that could be made as an unconditional statement, no matter what your child is. I love them unconditionally. My child, no matter what, I have great love for them. What you cannot say is... Oh, I love my son so much, we have a great relationship. Because a relationship is a two-way street. You could shower them and would love and give and give and give, but that doesn't mean you have a good relationship. A relationship itself means that it's reciprocated. And therefore, if your child ignores you and takes things for granted, unconditional love doesn't necessarily result in an unconditional relationship. And therefore, what Hashem is saying is He wants relationship with us. Not just unconditional love. We know God is love and He unconditionally loves everybody. But unconditional love does not necessarily produce a relationship. And therefore, He has to do things. Tefillah is relationship. Tefillah is when you're talking to Hashem and you're both together. And the more the tefillah, the more the relationship. And therefore, sometimes He has to provoke tefillah because he can't just unconditionally shower us with love because that doesn't mean there's going to be a relationship tefillah brings the creature near to Hashem as the Ramban said at the end of Parashas Bo the purpose of mitzvah the purpose of Torah the purpose of tefillah is that we should say to Hashem in recognition and acknowledgement we are your creatures that's what tefillah is Therefore the more that a prayerful person prays and contemplates and meditates, the more he davens, in other words the, 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 the more he elevates himself and rises in his level of Iirama and Avas Hashem the actors he becomes more contemplative, and understanding of the kindnesses of Hashem. That's why the Gemara and Brach says, wouldn't it be nice if people would spend all day long praying? Why? Not as a means to an end, because prayer is an end. It means as you're davening, you're establishing more and more contact and relationship with Hashem. So if a person could do that all day, he be constantly nearing and coming close to Hashem. Because prayer is not a means to an end. It's an end in itself. He praises himself. For being a prayerful person. As it says in Tehillim. And I am prayer. Which is translated by the commentaries. Meaning I am a man of prayer. Man is essentially a praying being. Why? Because has so many needs. No. It's because through prayer you're constantly invoking God and coming nearer. The Gemara says that as a as a byproduct of of the of the curse of the snake was of for tocha you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So the Gemara comments. Well, that's not such a bad thing, really, because it means that the snake has his, his uh, food and nourishment always attainable. It's very frequent. You tell someone, you're going to eat garbage all your, all your life. Oh, well, walk around your slime. The cats of your slime are having the time of their lives. And, you know, the other day I'm going down the street and I hear this cat meowing near a restaurant like he wants food. Oh, it's a spoiled cat? I mean, you have so much out there. Just go take it all. And it's, it's, it's great. There's garbage all around. So telling someone a curse you're going to eat garbage also means that your, your sustenance is going to be readily attainable. So what kind of curse is it? It's a curse that means you don't have to come on to God. Unlike the human that has to constantly come out, you never need God. And you don't have to think about God. We know that in the curse or rather in the blessing in Parsha's Toldos when ya, when Yitzhak blesses Yaakov so he uses he uses the as the form of his blessing he tells him let's find it he blesses him by saying and God shall give you from the dew of the heavens and fat of the land and an abundance of, of grain and wine. And later on when Yitzchak pressures his father, give me, give me some bracha. He uses almost the exact same terminology. <laughs> the fat of the land and the dew of the heaven. What's the difference between the two blessings? Well, Rashi, comments, what does it mean, V'yiten locha Hashem shall give you? Yiten is a future tense giving. He shall give and give again and give again and give again. What's the point of that? That Hashem shouldn't just give it to you that you have it once and never think about it. It should be a constant source that comes from God. V'yiten locha lokin, let it be God's giving of you. And if you have to come back again, the V'yiten locha again, and v'iten locha again, and v'iten locha again. Rather than establishing a trust fund for your children, where you put ten million dollars in their bank account, and you don't see them for the next twenty years, you give them a monthly stipend. They come back every month, and they're establishing relationships with their father. At the end of this week's parsha, we have the exact same thing. Hashem says, "I'm going to give you month. I'm going to give you month daily." And it's going to rot. And next day you're going to get mon again. And the Gemara says in Yuma, Why was the mon given daily to rot daily, only that it should come again the next day? Do it on a monthly basis. Why have to redo the miracle daily? Hashem wanted Jews to learn the lesson. That you have to come on to Hashem constantly. Every day. And we have a principle from this that great is the is the parnos of a person like Kriyas Yamsuf. what's the connection of the miracle of the sea with the mon after all, what is a natural miracle and what is a supernatural miracle it's the result it's the fact that parnos means people have to constantly come on to Hashem and develop a relationship just like we find and when the Jews were by the sea, they doubted to Hashem because all was lost. And they had to come out to Hashem and as a result, they were able to be thankful and say, Zach, Ivan because they achieved this closest to Hashem. So therefore the constant need to come out to Hashem is the goal. That's the goal. It's not the means to achieving your parnosa. It's the goal of needing parnosa to come close to Hashem. Because if Hashem doesn't care about you, you could be a snake. You'll have dirt. I don't want to see you again. You could be like Esau. You'll have the fat of the land, the dew of the heaven, but you lack the Kim. you lack this constant coming on to Hashem for Parnosa. You lack the mon, which comes daily as a reminder of our need to Hashem. It's the kriyas yamso that shows us how much we need Hashem when we cry out to Hashem like this damsel in distress. Tefillah therefore becomes the goal in and of itself. And therefore, through prayer, you're constantly rising. Dabra Melah praises himself by saying, What is the essence of man? The essence of man is establishing relationship to Hashem. <speaking in Hebrew> That's me. I am Tfilah. Tfilah being what? This constant need for Hashem and establishing relationship. Dabra Melah praises himself by saying, God, I am a praying being. I have to doubt to you constantly. I need you constantly, and I'm constantly to you. This is me. I am what? Prayer. Ani ish Or even better, I am prayer itself. Because prayer is coming close to Hashem. It's power, he crib. It's korban. What is a korban? To come near. Prayer is to come near. He crib. But let's continue now to the next paragraph. There are times when people become complacent. They forget God. (laughs) Tsars come to remind them about prayer. (laughs) Viewed this way, prayer is not a means to avoid calamities and (laughs) tsars. God wants prayer. What does it mean? God desires the prayers of the righteous. It means He desires relationship with the righteous. And that's what prayer is. So he has to sometimes place them in predicaments whereby they will pray to establish the relationship. This relationship is a two-way street. God can't shower you with goodness, and as a result have a relationship. It's only if you respond in kind. And the tendency of people is that when they're complacent and showered with goodness, they don't pray. Therefore, the sorrows will come to be the means to produce the end goal, which is prayer, rather than the reverse. Rather than prayer being the means to alleviate suffering, suffering is coming as a means to invoke prayer. <speaking> in <Hebrew> Why? to bring a person to because tefillah is nearness to Hashem. Therefore, what is the lesson of the story of the king and the Bas Malachim? That's the Maslaw Chazal say. The Melech wants a relationship with the princess. He wants to marry her. He wants to talk to her. But more importantly, he wants her to talk to him. The list become a means to the end of having her speak to him. She now turns to him. The tsars become a means to the end of the relationship, of the speech. This, of course, now, top of the next column, This now answers the question that we began with: How does a person have the chutzpah when he can't extricate himself out of his own tzaras, and he knows that only God could extricate him from the tzaras, but God put him in there? How do you have the chutzpah to ask in prayer for God to nullify His own decrees and to take you out of your tzaras? If Hashem places you in the predicament and He makes a decree against you, what chutzpah gives you the right to ask Him to nullify that decree? He knows what's good for you. Isn't prayer to nullify the decree a corruption of the justice? Terence is based for saying, no, that's exactly what Hashem wanted. Hashem didn't put you in sorrows because He wanted to have sorrows. He put you into sorrows that you should have prayer and come near to Hashem. By the way, it works in both ways. Another answer given as to why you're able to pray to remove God's decree, and how does prayer work? After all, if you deserve it, what is prayer going to do to change it? I mean, if you deserve this Tzor, what exactly does prayer do to change? Teretis, since prayer is elevation of the person to a higher spiritual level, on the level that you are at now, post-prayer, is different than the level that you were on to pre-prayer. The tsars that were given to you because you were deserving of them pre-prayer is a different person than you are now post-prayer, where now you're deserving not to have the tsars. So by the mere fact that prayer is elevating the person, that in itself causes as a consequence for the nullification of the decree. It's not the prayer beseeching that you're nudging God. Most people think of God like your children. They go, please, please, and they nudge you, and they nudge you. They so you say no to them the first time I always tell this to my wife I say decide now in advance are you or are you not going to give him the candy or are you telling the child basically "Listen, you know what I'm not going to give you the candy until you nudge me for the next five minutes that's the effect that we're telling our kids when they nudge you you give it after five minutes it's like okay you can say please once it's not enough if you're going to cry once not enough you have to pull on my skirt and keep pulling and keep pulling and keep nudging me after three and a half minutes of that then I will give you the candy is that what you're telling your child? That's in fact what you are telling your child. Nudge me, nudge me, nudge me. Then I'll give it to you. I mean, is that what God's doing with us with prayer? He makes a decree. We're in sorrows, and Hashem is in fact saying, "Okay, keep nudging me, keep nudging me. Huh? One more. Okay, now you get it. Well, God decides if you deserve it or not. What does prayer do? How does it work? How does it nudge? One answer is based on what we're saying: is that prayer itself changes you if prayer is elevation and being close to Hashem you're coming close to Hashem then the person that you are now as a result of prayer is a person that is deserving of the alleviation of suffering whereas the person that you were before the prayer is a person that deserved the suffering so obviously it will work because the decree was given based on what you are based on what you are now you're a better person a bigger person a closer person to Hashem now you deserve alleviation of suffering that's one answer But the other answer that we're saying right now goes beyond that. What prayer is actually doing is that's the end. The tsars were only there to provoke you or to evoke you into prayer. It's there to evoke prayer out of you. which is the relationship. That's what Hashem wanted. So of course you're allowed to doubt because this is what Hashem wanted originally. And therefore lengthy prayers also work. The longer the prayer, the closer you are to Hashem. That's precisely what Hashem wanted. He wanted you to get closer and closer and closer until finally he takes away the suffering. There's another corollary lesson for this, as we will see in a second. In any case, once we know that prayer is there in the order that sorrow brings on to prayer, Ratz HaShem Bezeh yeah. Adaravot La Hashem is trying to evoke us to prayer to get near to If that's the case... There's another lesson, if only we could bring ourselves to learning this lesson well. And that is that if we could be as close to Hashem in times of good as in times of bad, then we don't need the bad. If we could only feel that way. I know, I, I, I always think about this every time I um,
1: get a cold
0: or the flu or anything, or even an ingrown toenail. Because you, know, you have an ingrown toenail and it disrupts your, your, your entire being. You can't focus, you can't concentrate it's it's amazing how it's one little tiny part of your body it's not even one percent of your body it's ninety nine point nine nine percent of your body is good and 0.001 percent is no good but it makes it like your whole body is no good. finally you cut off that little ingrown toenail and you go ah how good and geschmack it is to feel good and you really feel good about feeling good but a day later you don't feel good anymore about feeling good when you had the suffering and you've alleviated that suffering you feel so good to just not feel suffering. And you're so thankful about it. And you were sick for a few days and uh, you felt like the world's coming to an end. And you wake up one morning, you feel really good about feeling really good. But the rest of the time, you don't feel that. So you need to feel bad to feel good about being good. That's really what it is. You need to feel bad sometimes in order to feel good about feeling good. But if we can learn the lesson and feel good about feeling good, then we wouldn't need to ever feel bad. Because God will have accomplished that anyway. We would feel good and thankful for feeling good. You know, when you bench after you overeat in a restaurant that you just spent $200 on, and and you just run through the benching. It's not the same benching as you do when you were really, really hungry, and you don't know where your food's going to come from, and finally get some food and you feel good, and you're so thankful to God. But isn't it ironic that a person who's poor and hungry and starving and gets a little morsel of food, feels so thankful about it. But when you're able to spend $200 on a restaurant meal and you overindulge and stuff yourself, and uh, you don't really feel like that shit. I mean, how could that be? Here you have so much and so good and so much more, and you feel much less coming to God than the poor person. So apparently it's part of the human nature, human psychology, that when you feel bad and then get relief, you're more thankful and appreciative than when everything is going good the lesson of course is that if we could feel as thankful and appreciative when we take the nilman that's what you mentioned earlier about the child's toys not the same but you know what if it could be the same halavai then then you wouldn't need the tzaras if you could be davening the same way for a toy as for something that you need then God would only be able to have to give us toys we wouldn't need the other stuff when we take the nilman ki tfilah hakoras hatoy if you could daven based on a principle of understanding of gratitude. If you could only daven by an awareness of God's kindness, then isn't that wonderful if you could be power without SARS? Then it's so much better. If you don't need the removal of God's of ring to put the Jews in the precarious state of almost genocide to get them to do tshuva. If only they could do tshuva without having a homon, without having, you know, it's sort of like, what does everybody say? We needed Arafat to take off the mask of Palestinian extremism to show us what our enemy is about. Boy, are we lucky. Until now that we're leftists. We needed tsars in order that post-Zionism should be, uh, should be shown to be what it is and that the Jews should feel the sense of, of unity. How I we could feel it? Well, we don't have tsars human nature. Human nature and psychology happens to be that when we don't have an Arafat and we don't have dangers and threats, they become post-Zionists and leftists and this and that and you know, we start becoming something else. We need sometimes unfortunately the Tsarist to make us aware of what it is, but if we could be aware of Chastay Hashem without Tzoros and in the same way, with the same Kavana. without Tzoros Then it would prevent the (coughs) tzaras. Then we wouldn't need the tzaras, and we could indeed prevent the (laughs) tzaras. But if a person could indeed be aware of God's kindnesses and come close to Hashem with them, and how much you owe gratitude to Hashem, you don't need other means. Then, (laughs) you don't need the harsh means which in and of themselves are only geared to this goal anyway. Why need harsh vehicles when you can have a good one? If you can approach God and come near by being aware of His kindness, that you don't need these harsh measures, whose ultimate goal anyway is to bring about this awareness. This then becomes a very important lesson on how to focus ourselves as to what fila is. This is the essence of tefillah. But you know, before we reiterate some of these things, I want to finish the Beis Halevi's point. Because the Beis Halevi makes a very similar point. Let's go back now to the Oz Yosher that we began. So what exactly is the Shira coming to thank Hashem and thereby somehow make a tikkun for the Oz that he sinned with? I sinned with the word Oz, I'm going to fix it up with the word Oz, Oz Yosher. How does the Oz Yosher fix up the me- Oz Bossi Al-Paraf? So therefore, he says like this. Third line in the base of Levi, Of what value Antikon is the word Oz that he's beginning to Shira with to the sin of the Oz of his previous statement that was sinful. Because as a corollary of what we learned before, you have the following. Very often the person is in Tsar's. Ha baruchu, oizrei, Hashem saves oizoy What does he then do? He thanks Hashem for salvation. No yisla, baruchu, shemach, woidual, you thank Hashem for for the kindness that he bestowed on you. But there are two approaches to this. Shnei, aifan, and and they very different approaches. if you're rejoicing, is on the salvation itself. If your main joy and what you're praising Hashem for is the fact that you have the kindness that He saved you from your tsar and that there was salvation from the tsar then your joy is not going to be any greater than a person that never had the tsar to begin with. If your joy in getting the ingrown toenail removed is the feeling of, of contentment that you have afterwards then you're not going to be any happier than if you wouldn't have had it. You wouldn't be any happier than if you never would have had the Tzara to begin with. Because your main rejoicing is for the Hatsalah, for the salvation itself. And therefore you're thanking Hashem for the Hatsalah, but you're no better off than if you never would have had the Tzara to begin with. And you're certainly not thanking Hashem for the Tzara, for the Tsar. You're not going to be happy at the Tsar. You're only happy at the salvation and your joy isn't any greater than having no tzar to begin with. However, the shira that the Jewish people sang by the yamsu was not only on salvation. It wasn't for salvation from the Egyptians. It was for their awareness of where they are today. That they became the instruments in the divine hand to show the world the Yarashem. What they were primarily thankful for was <laughs> the fact that they became the instruments in the hands of divine salvation that showed and demonstrated to all future generations what God's power and majesty is and they thereby became closer to Hashem and appreciated themselves as being the instruments of divine manifestation. Of God, of God, That they are the vehicles and the instruments of Kiddush Hashem. And therefore they begin the Shiro with what? I will sing praise to Hashem. He go, he go, all go, Because of God's great exaltation of his exalted state. What I'm primarily singing about and thanking is the fact that God's greatness is now so manifest in the world. Then came so the shirah was what? The shirah was on the fact that they were these instruments. And as part of that process, as a necessary component to this end, you needed the tsarist before as well. That's part of it. The enslavement, as well as the salvation, is all part and parcel of of this great manifestation of the divine of the divine uh, victory if you will. And all of this was the resulted in their elevation. Those two things happened. They demonstrated to the world God's greatness and they personally were elevated to a high level where they were able to say If this is what they're thankful for, then they have to be thankful for the shewood and the Taurus as well as the Salvation. Because with no sheep, with, with no Tzarus, there would be no need for salvation and they would have been in the state that they were always in which was with nothing. They'd rather go through Tzarus and be saved from the Tzarus and thereby establish a relationship. It's worthwhile going through Tzarus in order they should have this closeness to Hashem and therefore they're being thanked for the whole thing. And the oz now goes not only on salvation of Oz Yosher it goes back on the prior oz of the Tzarus. Moshe Rabbeinu now says, "Tak, it was all worth it. That was, and this saws. I'm going to do the tikkun by recognizing the worthwhile nature of everything, including the tzars and the shibud. And they're singing shira now on the shibud as well as on the gula, the redemption. <speaking in Hebrew> Without a shibud, there would be no need for gula. Therefore, some chua hashibud hakaidim kmoi al gula shalata. Therefore, they're able to rejoice equally on the Shibud and the Tsars of earlier, the same way that they're rejoicing on the redemption and the Gula of now. That's what it means. Ba'az Chotasi. I sinned with the words, Oz, because I complained regarding the Shibud and the Tsars. But now I'm going to say, Shira, with the same Oz. I'm going to use the same word to sing songs of praise and prayer. Shira. Pirusha, meaning, Now, when I sing my song of al Hashem, I'm saying it not only on now, I'm saying it on the earlier Oz as well. Gamal Oz, on the earlier Oz, I'm also going to sing. I'm going to praise Hashem and thank Hashem for the Shivud of before as well as the Gul of now equally. The Possig says until in says, I thank you, Hashem. I acknowledge you, Kiani Soni, that you have troubled me and oppressed me and made me suffer, Vatihili Lishua, and you've bid for me a salvation. If you look carefully at the pasuk, there's a subtle lesson in that. He's not merely saying to Hashem, "I praise you and thank you, Hashem," because although I was suffering earlier and I was under suffering. You have now been my salvation and saved me, and therefore I thank you for the suffering. No. Read the passage carefully. And we say this in how all the time. Okha Kiani Soni. I acknowledge you and I thank you that you have made me suffer. And you have been my salvation. That's why the passage reads. I thank you, Kiani Sani. I thank you for my suffering. And that that you are my Yeshua. So I'm thanking you equally for the Anisoni and the Yeshua. In other words, it's worthwhile for me to go through suffering and be saved from the suffering. I'm better off than having no suffering and no salvation. Because by having suffering with salvation, I am spiritually elevated and closer to Hashem than no suffering and no salvation. Possum says until Hashem I love Hashem. Why? Because he listens to the sounds of my prayer. What's the big deal? Obviously, everybody's gonna love Hashem for listening to the sounds of his prayer. But if you go through the rest of the capital film, Afafuni the the grave was surrounding me, death was at approaching me. So what do we say in halil? Halil is Shira. Halil is our way of doing the Shira of the Yosher. I love Hashem because he hears the sounds of my prayer because he turns his ear to me I mean this is no big deal everybody would love Hashem for that but it continues the straits of death had surrounded and approached him and the grave was reaching out to him I found all kinds of suffering and pain but I called out to Hashem oh no, Hashem, mal tonah, she saved my soul Hashem and Hashem was gracious and Hashem was merciful and He protected me and although I was impoverished He saves me what Dov. Melokh therefore is saying is it's worth it it's worth all of this that I should come to the love of Hashem everybody loves Hashem for listening to their prayers but everybody doesn't want the in order to pray in order to have Hashem listen to his prayers Avoid the tzaras, avoid the prayers, avoid the love of Hashem for listening to the prayers. No, I want to love Hashem. And I love Hashem for listening to my prayers at the tzaras that I was in. Therefore it's worthwhile going through tzaras in order that I should pray and reach out to Hashem, in order that Hashem should listen to me, in order that Hashem should save me, and thereby I come to a greater awareness and appreciation and love of Hashem. I thank you for Hashem. I thank Hashem for not only Yeshua, but O oh, Anisani, I thank you for the Anisani for placing me under suffering. But He did you within my salvation, and therefore I became close. This is what David Melach earlier we had praises himself. Tfilah, I am prayer. David Melach says, What am I? I am a stick prayer. Vanit Tfilah, I am prayer. The essence of man is prayer to come closer and closer to Hashem. David Melech is saying that's what I'm all about. My whole life was about constant sorrows and constant coming close to Hashem. And it's worth it. It's worth it, sorrows, to come close to Hashem. Bani it became a shtick prayer. As a result, I give Hoydaw on the inui because, and, and here the of lev just adds one more aspect to it. The Ideza Bolia Yeshua. Not only do I have Yeshua to come close to Hashem, but in addition, this Shim I now become the instrument and the vehicle of Kiddush Shei of sanctification of Hashem's name therefore for both they're both good here I'm able to be the vehicle the instrument of Kiddushem shemaim. it's worth it what we therefore see from all of this is that prayer the essence of what prayer is is the ability of man to communicate with Hashem and thereby come close to him and sorrows therefore sometimes become means to the end and prayer is the end and the more you pray and longer prayers, what justifies it is this coming close to Hashem. The reason why Hashem listens to prayers is A, because the purpose of the Tsars was merely to invoke prayer or to prevoke prayer. B, after prayer you're a different match, you're a different person. Anit feel you're a different person. You don't deserve the earlier Tsars, Hashem will nullify the decree. But you're also now an instrument of divine manifestation, of divine grace. If a person could be on that kind of level without tsars, we wouldn't need the tsars. And therefore, if you could come to hakoras hatov of Hashem, without it, halva, that would be much, much better. Unfortunately, it's the nature of people to not feel like that. So what happens is the bomb goes off in May The first reaction is vayitzakum. To cry out to Hashem, paro hikrim, Vaitzaku. And the same way, paro hikrim, If you're complacent in your neighborhood, there was never any kind of of troubles, you get complacent. Along comes a paro and gives you Tzoros, or an Arafat, ufaro Hikriv, and he brings you near. One bomb, two bombs, and you're able to appreciate the miracle of the salvation that no one has hurt. So you come out and dance. And you come out and you dance and you sing. Oz Yosher. You start off by it's actual, Hashem, there shouldn't be Tzaros. And then with the awareness that there isn't Tzaros and Hashem save you from Tzaros, your response is, O's yoshim, I sing to Hashem, A, that we have now an opportunity to be closer to Hashem, B, that we have become the instrument of Kiddush Hashem, where the world is able to look at it and say, Wow, two bombs in Neish Sharm and no one was hurt. And one was around all these shiva boys. That are learning during Seder and with all of the people around, bombs blown two hundred feet in the air, in a crowded I mean, you know what Meshar is like, it's packed, it's crowded, near Yeshiva, thousands of people studying there, and they walk away without injuries. And everybody's saying, Oh, what a miracle. Oshiro Lashem, Kiko, it's worth it. It's worth having a bomb if no one's injured, because you now become the instrument of the divine grace. What a wonderful opportunity. So we have the same thing in the parshem. Ufaro hikriv. Arafat brings you near. Paro homon. Arafat brings you near to Hashem. Why? Because you dive to Hashem to be relieved from the Tsars. And when you are relieved, Oshiro you sing praises. And then you're aware the Oz Chotosi. The word Oz that was my sin in unawareness. Now I'm aware that that's also a necessary component, and I'm able to thank you and sing praise for this odd as well as that odd. It's all equally good. Prayers an end in itself. That's what Dr. saying, Bani Tefillah. Therefore, through Tsaros, followed by Tefillah, a person elevates himself, comes closer to Hashem, and for that also, a person could give thanks that Tsaros, as well as the Tefillah, allowed him to come closer to Hashem. However, we should make the following point. On side two, we have a word here from the Mayan Beis from, from Shem and Schwab, regarding Tefillah. The Pasuk, as we said earlier, we talked about the Tefillah of Vayitz'Aku Vaitaku Ne'ezrael, El Hashem. However, we find a few Psukim later, Pasik Yudalad, Tezvav, Vayam Hashem, and Pasik Kesvav, rather, why are you crying to me? Why are you davening to me? So, go and into the sea. Now is not the time to daven. The Mechilta it says it says a clearer clearer expression. Hashem says to Now is a time when the Jews are in great distress. They're surrounded by the sea. They're pursued by the enemy. Why are you spending a great deal of lengthy time to be marvin tefillah? Now is not the time. There's a time to daven at greater length, a time to daven more more quickly. As we find, it says when, when Miriam was sick, Moshe Benu Davin, a very short prayer, Kail no please Hashem, heal her. And that is a time to be Makatsir, a time to shorten your thrilling. However, we find Moshe Benu Davin at great length, Moshe spent 40 days, 40 nights Davin to Hashem, Haarez El This was a time. To Lengthen prayer So what's pshat? When do you lengthen? When do you shorten? Apparently HaKadosh Baruch Hu Was somewhat criticizing Moshe For davening too much Davening too long When the Jews were In this trouble Yet we find earlier by Yitzhak, Israel, oh, Hashem, There was no criticism over there When do you lengthen your prayer? When do you shorten? It says Shimon The truth is As we pointed out much earlier of what purpose is there in general to daven that great man. Hashem knows exactly what you need and even if there's a point to daven to pray as soon as you daven Hashem hears you He heard what you had to say. What's the point of saying it and repeating it and over and over nudging so to speak? What's pshatna? We know we know of Yasa the know of Yoshim. Hashem hears the cries of those that fear Him. He listens, He hears, He saves. Why then is there any point in Davni at Great length? So we answered earlier. We answered earlier and He says basically the same point now. The same kind of an idea that we said earlier. The advantage of davening at Great length, as we said earlier in the Broch it would be wonderful if people would Daven all day long. So we know that Hammarak with Tilosim is is praiseworthy to Daven at greater than at wise that? Because as we said earlier, Kiina Tfila Batsmahu to date la filosim, because tvila is is spiritually elevating. It brings the person near who faroh hikrid. brought the Jews near by their Tvila's. The more you Daven, the more you are in a state of communication, of communion, if you will, of spiritual closeness to Akodesh Baruch Hu, the more you daven, the closer you are. And therefore, as we've explained, Filos and Shot tzadikim. For that reason, Hashem desires the Filos of because he wants to get close to them. And through Filos, they become close. But points out when you're davening alone privately and you want to get nearer to Hashem. So the more you daven, the more praiseworthy it is, the closer you get to Hashem. And you're doing it in private. You're doing it in private on Har Sinai, you're davening alone, you're getting closer and closer to Hashem. And it's, it's self-fulfilling and it promotes this closeness, this spiritual elevation and closeness. when you're in the midst of a tzara of a klal Yisro kishi Yisro b'tzara tzrichim Yeshua when klal yisrael is in need of a Yeshua they're in tzara and they need an immediate Yeshua take a then there's no point in trying to get close and spiritually elevating then you have to focus on the immediate needs of Yeshua Israel. Then it's not an issue of tefillah, as we said earlier, as being an end in itself. Then we're not talking about tefillah as being a self-elevating and a me and, and, and an end in itself, an ultimate thing. Then tefillah is utilitarian. Then tefillah is a means to bring about the salvation of Israel. Klal Israel is in a tsara; they need immediate relief. They're in distress and they need immediate relief. That's not the time to go at great length, to daven at great length. And therefore we find when Miriam was sick, and when Miriam was in pain, when she was having the taras, she needed immediate relief. She needed to be healed. She needed to be cured instantly. That's the time to in more briefly. So, therefore, although we've had a long and lengthy discussion on the merits of tefillah as being an end in itself, we should not lose sight of the fact that sometimes tefillah is a means to an end as well. Yes, vani tefillah, tefillah is an end in itself. vatili lishua. I thank Hashem for tzorus. I thank Hashem for allowing me the opportunity to come near Hashem. And therefore, by it's, Aku b'nei Yisrael al Hashem, when Kla Yisrael cries out to Hashem, that means that they're nearer to Hashem. Ufaro, Hikrim, Paro, indirectly through his tsar, causes Klai Yisrael to bring themselves near to Hashem. And therefore, they're able to say, Oz Yosher, they sing the song for being close to Hashem, that their tsar brought them and it feels good and the Tzara is good and the Yeshua is good and therefore they sing Shira on everything as we've said earlier however there are times that we're not going to focus on Tefillah as the end in itself the Tefillah was good when Klal Yisrael used it as the means to elevate themselves but when Moshe Rabbeinu is praying on behalf of Klal Yisrael or on behalf of Miriam then you have to realize don't focus on your own spiritual elevation and coming close to Hashem Daven for someone else's Yeshua. Daven on behalf of someone else's Tzara. Try to alleviate their suffering. That's your first responsibility. When someone is sick and suffering and they need your assistance, whether of a physical nature, a material nature, or of a spiritual nature, that's your responsibility and that's where your focus has to be. And if it means helping them materially and physically do that, if it means helping them spiritually do that, then Daven, do not focus on ful as the end in itself of self- of self-improvement and elevation. It's on behalf of someone else. Therefore, what we see from all the above is that there indeed is two aspects of tefillah. There's tefillah that's utilitarian, that's a means to an end when it's on behalf of somebody else. And then that's where your primary focus is, their issue of their betterment, their alleviation of suffering. And if tefillah is needed, do it, but do it on behalf of someone else, not with the focus of tefillah as the end all in itself. When it's someone's own person, when you're davening privately, when you're davening on your own behalf, you have to realize that the as well as the tzvila is for the purpose.